going to record. Okay. So Alicia, we're going to record a bit of this pregame as we get kind of ramped up here. So I will say clap really loud when we are ready to commence. There's a big rainstorm and windstorm going on right now here in my town. So if my power randomly goes out and we lose the recording, thank you all for coming. And I very much appreciate you being here. Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, Jeremy has had his internet rocked by a hurricane. So we can't have him uh, with us, sadly, but he is here in spirit, which is too bad because we are watching or we are discussing a fantastic film, Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You. And I, I am your host. This, I am your host this evening doing my best. Uh, I'm Emily, the cinnamon roll of Cenobites, friendly neighborhood Megamoth, and I am joined by some wondrous individuals first off challenging the sexy werewolf sexy vampire binary is my usual co-host ben khan how are you tonight ben rooting for you thank you yeah we're i'm trying my best i'm giving y'all three cheers and all my support (laughs) no i am very excited to be talking about what is honestly one of my favorite movies of all time this is a fantastic film and our guest tonight, first off, we have the writer, editor, podcaster, and all-around renaissance person, Amanda Meadows. Amanda, how are you? Hello. Hello. I'm good. And yourselves, without a hurricane, still <laughs> edging out. <laughs> yeah. We're doing rankings. It's Y'all been chilly off. and a little rainy over here. But yeah. I guess that's not worth fetching about when your co-host <laughs> just got taken out by a hurricane. Yeah, I was whining about them Santa Ana winds just a, a day <laughs> or two ago. I'm going to keep that quiet and keep that to myself. I mean, all conditions are valid at this Thank point. Thank you. Yeah, climate change is truly everywhere. All yeah, climate works. No matter how it manifests. It's 2024. We have normalized having a bad time. We have. Thank God. It took a long time for y'all to catch up to us. (laughs) Now you see the horrors too. Finally. To be fair, nobody has ever accused my people of not being quick to complain. (laughs) I mean, it's important, like, all of us who come from heritages of joyful bantering and, like, loving argumentation. It's it's important for us to come together (laughs) in times Hmm. like these. Complain together. (laughs) That's why the Talmud is the greatest living document, because have you ever seen someone throw the craziest shade at a dude who died 400 years earlier? Uh, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. People of the book, the burn book. (laughs) We, well, I, I was hosting a fundraiser for Jews to Racial and Economic Justice over Hanukkah and it was all going to be just doing riffing all the riff tracks on one of the Hallmark Hanukkah movies and we were like well this is our heritage is like and analyzing the text and saying what's wrong and in this case the text is trash so 
Yes. That's how we oh my God. Uh, I think I know. It, was it the one about uh, the girl who like just discovers Hanukkah? Yes. <laughs> that was from a work. No, this was no, the, well, no, the real mysterious part was the Jewish guy who somehow, despite living in the world, knew nothing about Christmas. It's um, the craziest which, element. I, I don't think you engage with the world then because there's sort of Christian hegemony everywhere, guys. Yeah. I, yeah, it was, I think if you're doing a Hallmark Hanukkah movie, you can really pad the runtime by just having one character sit down and watch the entire Rugrats Hanukkah special start <laughs> to finish. Bless. It would be so much better that way. I would be remiss if I didn't introduce uh, you, Alana. I just want to jump in. Introducing our other guest, Alana Levin podcaster activist reviewer and riffer of hanukkah hallmark movies and that's an important Apparently. job because there needs to be that you know we need that in our lives i didn't know there were hallmark hanukkah movies um, it's look, new it's a new thing look, it's like the past so, several years only somebody yeah. has to keep jeremy jordan employed <laughs> yeah it's chocolate hummus new like they yeah. they don't know what they don't know what they're doing they're trying everything spaghetti against the wall Matzah against the wall. It bounces. Uh, for this movie, though, we have a movie that throws so many things at the wall, and they all fucking hit a bullseye. Yeah, no, the, mm. I love this. Mm. This is the first time I've seen this movie. Is this the first time everybody or has anyone here seen this movie before? Yeah, yeah, I saw yes. it. I saw it in the theaters when it came out. I hadn't seen it since, and I was glad I rewatched. I definitely think that I hadn't like forgotten any of the major <laughs> plot points, but it was very good that I rewatched it, and I, I it's hard to forget, especially <laughs> going yeah. to it blind. It's really this was a rewatch for me, and it's really on this rewatch that it enters my favorite movies of all time. Because mm -hmm. first time watching it, you get to that you know twist like when there's a half hour left, and you get to that ending. And first time I watched, it, I went like. Well, that fucking came from out of nowhere. And on the rewatch, I went, there was no other way it could have ended. Everything, <laughs> was, everything was clearly building to this all along, actually. The classic horse people gambit. Um, <laughs> you see it all the time in film. Uh, Amanda, was it your first time or have you seen it before? I was an eager opening weekend. Uh, oh, good. You were at the theaters and I actually didn't get a chance to rewatch it before this podcast, but I'm going to rewatch it this weekend. It's really burned into me. It's uh, like I, I remember that my experience of seeing it in the theaters and really just kind of having finger snaps for everything and just being like, yes, boots, this is a unified theory of all of the end stage capitalism bullshit that we're being pushed through. Um, and in, we will all be chattel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In the spaces in which I organize in, like, you know, my own background is I, I worked in directly in the labor movement for labor unions, including the one of the labor unions who was organizing call center workers, ergo, like the workers in this particular yes. film, in my part of, of the labor movement, the, uh, I mean, are we, I guess we've, you've said the H word, so I'll say here, the, the yeah. horse pivot was the horse pivot was divisive. Actually, there are a lot of people who were upset that he went in that more fantastical direction, feeling like the realities of what happens in a in an in an organizing campaign and what things companies are actually up to is outlandish enough that it like they felt like it. I, this is not my opinion, but I feel mm -hmm. like it's worth vocal. It's like worth verbalizing that. 
is outlandish enough that in some ways, including that additional heightened level makes people not take the real stuff, like to be, no, this is literally shit that happens. And I don't know, I've had, I've also heard people like in the movement say that they felt the ending was too bleak. You know, he has a win and then he loses basically. And I'm like, that last I, piece. The ending is more... a billionaire about to get his fucking head stomped in. So. I mean, he's still a horse person. But I don't know. Yeah. Being like teenage billionaire fighting mutant horses. I'm the, yeah. That's a wash in my book. I, yeah. uh, I think this is where intersectionality and an understanding of black media and how black bodies move through capitalism would make it a little bit easier for i think some people to like accept the the big fantastical jump because i do think it's necessary after just having seen it the one time just because i felt like we needed a cartoonish representation of what this turns us into beyond what we've already seen it like throws a new like like pangram at the collage of pangrams that we weren't expecting and i think it it forces us to make room in our understandings of what capitalism reduces us to what minstrelsy reduces us to what all of the the most uh self-effacing survival mechanisms do to just further you know keep ourselves under the boot and what that looks like when it ratchets up on us I I really liked that, but it's also like it's a very difficult thing to expect. <laughs> oh, right, that is, you that is so well. It. That is so well said. I mean, yes. from his earlier music video work, though, like he's always been interested in bringing in the fantastical yeah. and sort of seeing heightened reality. And yeah, I think you're pulling from magical realism is a good one here in like the things that people encounter in their daily lives. Like if you watch. The Coos video for shit. Which one is it? The uh, the, we've got the guillotine. Like it's really, I think, a trial run for the visuals, at least uh, at certain points in the movie. Yeah. Well, for me, it's I'm kind of coming at it from the opposite direction because I've seen I'm a Virgo, and so I came into this expecting for it to be fantastical in some way. And I also, from the beginning of the movie, I felt that there was a certain amount of magical realism, which is, I was thinking during the film that it reminded me a lot of the Michel Gondry movies. And then I saw that he had a Michel Gondry like reference in there directly. <laughs> and I, yeah. but that, I, that's really cool to me because a lot of those movies do have, they're, you know, kind of airy and full of like manic pixie dream girls and things like that, where this movie is talking about something a little bit. Uh, De- Detroit was very much not a manic pixie dream girl. No, she was like a serious, like Detroit is a, an amazing, powerful character. goddess. Yeah, but um, yeah, the horse thing. I mean, you know, you're gonna listen to this podcast. You're gonna find out everything you need to know about this movie. So I hope you watched <laughs> it. The horse thing for me just translated to like the extremity of dehumanization, and you know the, the how a lot of literally that happens but we just don't connect because you know there's a lot of things that people can excuse with jargon you know and that's like a big part of what this movie is about and about capitalism and all that kind of stuff but um, i i think amanda i think you really nailed it about needing to see that like extreme caricature of what the systems turn people into and what the actions lead to 
I think it's kind of what American visual literacy can understand in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I think the rejection that comes from like, I don't know, like you said, that segment of the audience that didn't like that twist or that element. I think it also comes from like, for some like kind of rejecting that there was that magical realism and a little absurdism the whole time. Like, Mm. oh yeah, this telemarketing like job company has a magical high-tech golden elevator full of like elite telemarketers who make millions of dollars telemarketing (laughs) rare elements and guns at this telemarketing company and it's like i think for for some reason even though again you have eye patch wearing fucking bowler hat amari hardwick yeah speaking like pat and oswald I think it's for some reason, it's for some audiences, it's not until you're faced with literal horse people that you go, I think this world might not totally hold together. Well, the fact <laughs> that, was, that you, the white voices were literal white voices overdubbed, like we had David Cross and yeah. Patton Oswald, which I'm like, good oh, job, guys. Let, this is some of the whitest voices you'll ever hear. The reedy voices. Yeah. yeah. Let me get into the cast and uh the yeah, cast and director of this this movie was written and directed by boots riley and it stars holy fucking shit this cast right lakeith stanfield giving such a powerhouse performance tessa thompson being a fucking goddess jermaine fowler being such the opposite of his role in the blackening fucking <laughs> range and Mari Hardwick, who I don't even know how to fucking describe Amari Hardwick in this movie. Again, that he has like one, like three lines that he actually speaks and the rest is Pat and Oswalt. Yeah. Well, he just looks yeah. menacing and fucking fly as hell. Terry Crews. And then. Uh, so good. Oh, yeah. Stephen Yun, who is just wonderful as always, features the voices of David Cross and Pat and Oswalt. And not Steve Buscemi. That is like a rumor going around that Steve Buscemi was Danny Glover's white voice. It is not Steve Buscemi. It is just a crew member on the movie. Oh, yeah. Danny Glover. Yeah, Danny Glover. This was the whole fucking stack that I forgot about Danny Glover. Bringing up the rear is Army Hammer, who is honestly incredible in this movie for all of the worst reasons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and everything. I'm not sure how much acting was actually done on no, Harvey's part for this film. Yeah, he understood Very the little. assignment in ways that I don't think that a lot of people should. Yeah. Um, the bur- uh, fun the- fact... He was born on the Cayman Islands. Like, he was, like, born and raised on the Cayman Islands. Like, he was born. He was attacked for that role. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He himself is a a holding company with his companies. He's like, fucked up racist billionaire, you you say. (laughs) I think I could swing it. When the news, when the sort of news stories about his private life began to come out, People were legitimately confused because they were like, no, no, that was just in that movie we watched. And they were like, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> this is real. This is 
we're not confused that this is like a new news story about things he did in, in, in real life. He has not actually created any horse people, but he did. It was, it was like abuse allegations. There, yeah, there, there were some, his girlfriend. There were some vor fetish related abuse allegations. Yeah. That's yeah. what I remember. Yeah. I just, um, and I, and I didn't come up with this joke, but I can't get over that his name is literally, that he is the heir to the Arm and Hammer fortune, literally named Army Hammer. That is a. I didn't know that. That is yeah. a Pizzerina Sabaro from Thirty Rock level joke Truly. of a name. That's yeah. Is that true? I just go to the yes. Hammer Museum. Yes, literally. Gross. Arm and Hammer. His name. He is literally the heir to Arm and Hammer. Yeah, and that that's why his name is Army Hammer. Maybe he is making worse people because that is like the most. That is a fucking late stage capitalist joke right there. Right. Holy shit. Holy shit. Oh, it's, it's on the nose. Yeah. It's like breaking my nose. It's so on the nose. But yeah, so Ben, tell us about what happens in this in this film. Oh my God, this movie. So this movie takes us through the journey of one Cash is Cash Green as he searches for larger meaning in his life and worries about the sun exploding. Big same. Right. <laughs> uh, he gets a job at Regal View telemarketer alongside his friend Salvador and Steven Yun, who is named Squeeze for some reason. Squeeze. It, Let's... I really, you really don't expect a man named Squeeze to be like, I'm big into organized labor rights. Squeeze is more the guy who's like, hey, I stole my nephew's Adderall. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is Oakland, though, remember. Oh, yeah, it's oh, this whole movie is Oakland as fuck. Yeah. And man, just see a job, but struggles until wise Danny Glover, for once a black man got his own magical black man, and I appreciate that mm -hmm. in this movie, teaches him the magic of the white voice, whereupon Lakeith Stanfield can make himself sound like David Cross, and it never stops being weird and amazing in this movie. And thanks to the magical power of his white voice, he shoots up the telemarketing ladder. Did you know there was a telemarketing ladder? Well, there is. There is here. Yes, where he is eventually promoted by the actress who plays the agent who says the F word a lot in the other two. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know her name. She was good. I, she was yeah, good. I... I just saw him like, oh, shit, yeah, the other two. I know you. If you haven't seen the other two, mm -hmm. a good show. Anyway, Cash is eventually promoted to the power caller position where he reports to Mr. Bleep. Alicia, I don't know if you want to throw in an actual bleep, but eh, fuck it. Just Mr. Bleep is fine. Mr. Bleep. Yeah, Mr. Bleep. Or to his friends, just. Yeah, they sell arms and. Hammers? Well, slave labor who swings hammers. But Cash is like, oh, this seems fucked up, but you know, capitalism, which needless to say, alienates him from his friends who are forming a nascent talent marketers union and his radical uh, Detroit, who is fucking amazing in every way and is also part of the Left Eye Movement organization fighting it back against, don't worry. The, like, Army Hammer's 
slavery startup. Don't forget I, the uh, the fact that he owes money to Terry Crews, his uncle. And yes. his uncle's going to lose the house. And I feel yeah, like the pressure that his uncle is feeling and that he feels for trying to care of him. Like, I think it's important that his motivation is like on a certain level is like, I need to survive. It's desperate. Um, yeah. It's literally about yeah. retaining housing. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and it, which is a specifically like existential crisis in the Bay Area where it's we're losing black people in in every metropolis and like in Oakland, you know, the ways that we oh, cleverly that get truth. people booted out of their homes, you know, so they could flip it to Google workers. Like usually not even cleverly. No. Yeah. Truly. <laughs> no. Oh man. No, it is. And one thing I definitely appreciate this movie is that, you know, it's that, you know, rags to riches to middle class, but it does acknowledge that it's like, well, hold on. No, it's still Rich is that, but it's still important to get to that, you know, there is still a level of survivability that you still need to be able to afford, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, I loved the shot of the door, garage door, accidentally getting opened on the neighborhood. And I have to feel like, I, okay. you know, somebody's like lived in that garage and had that, you know, door get opened on them when the garage opener gets busted. I have known several yes. people who have lived in garages. Um, yes, same. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Werner Park is a, it is trying really hard to be a family town and not a college town. And it's working. It's pretty sad. But like, when I started going to college here, there was a lot of people living in garages. And, you know, the, the, this is during like the housing crash. Like this is yeah. uh, during the recession and people still couldn't afford shit. But yeah, like the, the Bay Area, there's a lot of things I could say about the Bay Area-ness of this movie. But the that moment with the garage really started off that kind of magical realism setting for me, even though it was a very practical and real thing. The way that they showed it, where the background becomes like burnt out in the lens of the camera and almost like as if the walls are falling away from the situation, which is echoed later. But we'll get to that. I think a bit of magic, one of the earliest bits of magical realism for me in this movie, even though it's not actually in any way supernatural or otherworldly, is just Detroit's amazing murder kill earrings. All of her earrings. Yeah. Yeah, so good. I also like uh, her The Future is Female Ejaculation t-shirt. I have yes, a question, though, one. actually. I, I was surprised that we were covering the movie as a horror, from the horror perspective, because that's just not how I've ever... Sometimes that net, sometimes that net gets cast real wide. I just wanted to talk <laughs> about fair. this movie. We just, you know, there are horrifying elements of this movie. Yeah, Rough. I think there's the the element of body horror, body horror, you know, in in sort of a in sort of a psychological way, and then later in like a physiological way. At first, it's like a disembodied voice that's that is a very like specific kind of violence and does usually doesn't really get thought of as body horror, but this is a really great case for that. Yeah. Also, also that sometimes moment. you just got to treat yourself. <laughs> yeah. 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 That scene at Army Hammer's uh, party. I don't know. I can't remember the name. Stephen Lift or whatever. Yeah. Where he's telling Cash to rap. I, if that's not horror, mm -hmm. I don't know what is. Okay. Just, so good. I know that I certainly cannot 
relate to the racial, any of the racial elements of that scene, yes. but to the specific experience of being put on the scene, of being put on the spot, and people demanding that I rap, the PTSD I got to fucking seventh grade after Eight Mile came out, and everyone in my white as hell suburb decided we we know how to freestyle rap when we're gonna do a rap battle, and I'm like, please don't, please don't. Yeah. That Please. really, when we talk Please about white boy Please summer, no, 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 that's no. a real white boy summer. Oh, that that was a couple of years. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. I grew Those up in Orange years. County. It was rough, man. Oh, I'm sorry. High, oh. High, oh, boy, the high school. <laughs> the high school you. Jesus. <laughs> so, you, you say this movie isn't a horror, but that scene fucking gave me the sweats. <laughs> It's it's anxiety producing for sure. Yes, yes. Yeah. Which I real I recognize that under that definition we'll be covering uncut gems pretty soon. But... Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh no. I mean, it's not even a critique. It's just interesting to me to see it approached through that lens. That just wasn't what I was anticipating. That's all. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting lens to approach it through. Yeah. Well, I thought about that too when I was watching it because it's definitely more of a comedy, and it's like. You know, would I categorize I'm a Virgo as horror? Not really, but there are mm. elements of it that are kind of like body surreal and things like that. I I wouldn't say body horror, but the surreal elements of that and what they discuss, maybe. But this was, I think this is definitely more ho horror than that. I think this movie falls back on her old friend, existentially terrifying. Yeah, existentially. Mm -hmm. We haven't asked those questions in a while. Where I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm laughing, but I feel deeply like just a pen, just deeply despair about the world. Yeah, if all if all existentially terrifying movies did have this kind of lighthearted element, I think it'd be easier for that to swallow. But anyway, we were on a recap. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Cash is being a cool guy, capitalism dog, power caller, while it's got a really good describe. Uh, the luck of the descriptors there. Cool uh, power dog capitalism. I love I love that boobly t shirt. Next yeah. <laughs> uh, mobile maxed. All the other telemarkers go on strike and try to stop the power calls from going in, which doesn't really work until one day someone throws a Coke can at Cash's head. And for some reason that act of violence immediately becomes the most viral thing in the fucking world. I mean, this I, is a world where the show "I Got the Beach the Shit Beat Out of Me" or whatever is like oh, not a not a critique. Again, like yeah. that is such a part of this like heightened absurdist reality that mm -hmm, show. Yeah. Again, and that it is the sense of like, wait, what the fuck's this timeline? Like, this happened yesterday, and it's already a viral video. Like, it's a it happens in the morning. It's a viral video that night, and it's on the news the next morning. When he sees a yeah. whole line of small children in that costume as him, like going for Halloween, it's just devastating. Is it yeah. even Halloween? Nobody else is probably not any other kind of costume. It's just that. yeah. That's the best part is the way he condenses the cycle of exploitation. Yeah. It's, you know, and, and you get to see every iteration of that and that and he uses it for comedic heighten, which is like it's just so consistent to the way like the marginalized experience through labor is of just like constantly laughing to avoid from crying from the absurdities that are foisted on you. Yeah. You work in service or telemarketing or what have you. 
And that oh, the woman who throws the can at him then becomes like an advertisement model, like yeah. he becomes the I, Pepsi commercial Kendall Jenner. Yeah, um, it's so good. Oh my God, the Kendall Jenner Pepsi commercial. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> Holy and shit. Peak, peak Does that happen after this or before that? That came after this, I want to say. This movie is way ahead of its time in a lot of things. For a moment, I thought it was like... I forgot that it was in 2018 and that was before the pandemic. Yeah. And the, yeah. Oh, like the there's one line. The well, pandemic. I, I, sorry. There, there's, Go ahead. I'll let you finish your thing. Sorry. Yeah. I'm done. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there, there was something that was absolutely prescient that from one of the lines. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, shit. Actually, I thought I copied it. Is it, it when Tessa Thompson? Is it when Tessa Thompson tells like he She says, "Claudia, you know, so this one is way. This one is and way more okay. Well, oh, while this you're looking for the yes, looking for the line, I would say like there are just like literal manifestations in reality that have transpired in the last five years, like yeah. like Amazon introducing workhouses, oh, like God, yeah. you know, and in reintroducing this idea of a company town that's truly you know a closed in plantation hell bot. <laughs> Where yeah. people are, you know, where they're just cramming people in. We're going to um, live in a metaverse. Yeah. Listen, that's if you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> For real. Gosh, you better hope you were born in the income bracket that gets you in the metaverse. Oh, I, the Look. quote was um, from the conversation that Cash and Squeeze are having at the bar or the cafe. Um, uh, Cash says, I tried to change it. I tried to stop it, but it's just right in front of their faces. They're turning human beings into monstrosities and nobody gives a fuck. And Squeeze replies, most people that saw you on that screen knew calling their congressman wasn't going to do shit. If you get shown a problem but have no idea how to control it, then you just decide to get used to the problem. I so also I just looked at Frank and I was like, so yeah, that's COVID. That's, yeah. that's COVID right yep. there. Yeah. Like, because yep. people don't feel like they have the ability to do anything about it they pretend it's not happening despite the fact that they're literally being disabled by it right, right now Holy and that, like that's right now. Uh, you know those are the like the gift that keeps on giving from the endless organized neglect you know we've yeah. all yes. been left to our own devices and when that's the case you know there's and we're all this siloed off and isolated from yeah. our because of work or being displaced or whatever you you don't have the ability to connect and and collectivize, which is what everybody's been doing since this movie co has come out, which is mm -hmm. exciting. Yeah, seventeen was when the Kendall is it Kendall Jenner? The oh, yeah, that was that was twenty seventeen. Oh, okay, so this was after. Oh my. Oof. Yeah, it that was, was like a, I did not predict. It was an early BLM, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, Cash is doing just such a good job as a power caller. He gets called over. He gets invited to a party by Stephen Lift, aka Army Hammer, as Army Hammer. <laughs> uh, oh, more foreshadowing for the horse reveal is all the times they show Stephen Lift's book and he's on top of a horse. Yeah, like, they, also... they see they see the lift and horse imagery like early and often, and like a lot of crazy rich white dudes obsessed with horses in ways that are unsettling. Mm -hmm. Especially his horse plate that he smokes coke or smokes that he that he sniffs coke off of. Not you, Daniel Radcliffe, in the play Equus. You just keep on keeping on. No, you're that's art. 
Yeah. I will stand by <laughs> it. That's what the kids like. Daniel Radcliffe, like theatrical performances from a fifth 14 years ago. I'm, I'm right on the pulse. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but before he can go to the party, he has to go to Detroit's, even though they've broken up, he wants to go to Detroit's art show where, oh, Detroit's art show. How are we feeling about Detroit's art show, everybody? I've seen some feeling shows. lots of ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In one of my other many previous lives, I actually like briefly worked at a graffiti art gallery in uh, Greenpoint in like 2002. Ooh, um, ground zero. You know, yeah. very much outside of the traditional art world, but I had a lot of interaction with it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I really appreciated how the movie really dug into how fucked up and commodified that world is as well and like as much as detroit is like pointing out all of these really important things to cash about what work is doing to him like she's also being forced into that in order to survive as an artist too right and like yeah yeah, she's also transforming who she has to be to get the money needed to keep surviving by which we mean Tessa Thompson does this entire scene in a British accent and nobody calls attention to it. It's yeah, amazing. I mean, the subtitles say white voice for her. It's a, it's a brilliant grift. Yeah. <laughs> no, is mean, it actually a white voice? She sounds amazing. Tessa Thompson doing a British accent. Oh, it's her. It's, it's okay. gotta be her. It's her. But it's, but it says on the, for the subtitles, if you watch it with, with captions, it says oh. white voice. So mm-hmm. that's a little extra for you. But I get it. I mean, like, because I've recently watching things like The Curse and when we watched Velvet Buzzsaw and also the new Candyman, thinking Mm. about, you know, ethnicity and art and performance art and how, like, it kind of fits in that segment of exploration of the art scene in, like, especially with characters of color, you know, like black characters and Native American characters. I mean, like, the white people want access to the emotions and feelings and cultural history of people of color. And they want to be able to indulge themselves in participating in them. And like, they want access. They want to be in people's like private lives and private spaces. Like it's really, really vampiric and creepy and racist. And it's like, I mean, it's been like that for so long. Like these Native American chiefs that were invited to like Louis's court back in 17 has or whatever <laughs> you know back there were there's so much fetishization and just you know powerful white people going like oh isn't this interesting and basically putting these concepts on display like they're just some kind of item anyway we're still i think we're still at the party at army hammer's party uh yes he goes to the party where he meets steven lift who is just, oh my God, fucking like every worst white guy you rolled up mm-hmm. into one super worst white guy is Steve Lift. He makes Edward Norton and Glass Onion look cute. Yeah. He makes him look endearing. Yeah. It takes a lot of insight to make an, yet another like new rich white guy character and for it to hit as good. Yeah, as as his does, it feels very contemporary plutocrat and like 
the way Boutre lavishes on the visual specifics and the references. Steve, I mean, Lyft has about two scenes in the movie, and that, uh, but that's enough Big to make him one of yes. my favorite movie villains of all time. <laughs> It's so much going on. It's like just visually, mm. there's a lot of really great, like just visual storytelling. Yeah, um, we get does you know we get Cash being put on the spot and forced to rap, which we talked about, which leads to the wildness of him bombing and just. I mean, would it be fair to say goes full self minstrel show, like just yelling the n word a whole bunch to the terrible delight of these this crowd. This is sort of a a resigned giving them what they want with the minimum effort that we all learn to do when in these kinds of environments that we can't escape readily from. You learn how to give what the bare minimum of what's necessary to survive to pass this level, you know, before you get to the next level of (laughs) nonsense racism. His performance was so good, like his fear and misery is so transparent. It definitely felt like an emotional low point in the movie yes. for the character, like a real term of like, of this isn't, of, oh, this isn't worth it. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's a, a great impulsive way for him to like, in the moment be shown to himself what he's putting himself through. And it's like, you can see him also just starting to realize that this is wearing on him what i really like about this is also you get the parallel to detroit's performance where she mm-hmm. is on stage and just having batteries and pig's blood thrown at her well we soning quotes from the last dragon which just that fucking sent me the really last funny. dragon that I, was what that was from died. yes oh god i i don't know God. Yeah, the survival mechanism. That'll be next week. We're covering the last track. <laughs> Are we? That's a horror movie, right? Yeah. No, um, no, we're not we're, going back to. We are. We're not, no, think... we're not doing the last track. I think we're talking it, about. It is my recommendation, though. Go see the last dragon. But, you know, you get to. But, which Cash pointedly objects to and tries to stop and questions how Detroit can put up with can demean herself in his eyes put up with that and yet mm-hmm. he is put in that uh, like in such a similar situation but without any of her agency and self voice yeah control. self voice that's not a thing y'all know what i mean though i don't know i know what you mean this is um, it's two two different ways of looking at the same situation it's a very nice parallel and contrast i found which kind of makes her art that much more poignant i mean I know oh yeah a lot of people you know it would seem extreme and it would seem ridiculous but kind of so self-effacing that it is like over the top suffering art however she's deciding to do it as opposed to uh cash who is like now put on the spot and is is dancing for these people that are giving him you know a, a handwritten note that says i will give you a million dollar smiley face yeah it was like a hundred million. A hundred million. There are a lot of zeros. <laughs> a lot of zeros. I was distracted. I will say, I would not become a horse person for one million dollars, but for one hundred million, and I don't know. I'd consider becoming a horse person. No, I had that point. No, not, not the whole becoming 
weird psyop cia mlk not that part fuck <laughs> that noise yeah i could see it happening in a in an extreme martyr situation yeah. i would do it so you know feed the block and then just kind of count down the clock until yeah yeah be the worst person get a hundred million dollars yeah Oh yeah, D D bonding agent like that fucking exists. Yeah, there was Seriously. made up like the secret sauce, the secret special sauce. Oh, uh, but anyway, getting ahead of ourselves, uh, <laughs> Amari Hardwick gives his one line in his own voice to give Cash the instructions to see lift in this absurd fucking house with all its fucking green doors. Sorry, Olive that house. Jade. Yes. Oh. Uh, Again, a great villainous line from a person who I believe did not have to pretend too hard to be a piece of shit. Fucking lift yelling like, it was clearly an olive door. Yeah, no, that's the J door. Died. Where Cash goes, finds lift, does some cocaine, air quotes, if you couldn't see through this audio media of me doing yeah. air quotes. I can hear you say, say, I just want you to know that the way that you said that, the air quotes were very explicit. Like, I, you don't... Yeah, yeah you did it. <laughs> for me. <laughs> and explains his plan to create a a race of horse people slave workers who will be stronger and have bigger penises. That, that... There was something there for uh, Army Hammer, or at least this character, or maybe both. That was serving something very personal for him, but I could tell. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But so. also that he felt that that was a trade-off that because of the penises, other people yes. buy into it. He's yeah. like, because you only care about your dick size, you will be okay with this. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's... Yeah. yeah it's that's... also like a tie to like some, uh, I don't... Things, specific violences I won't name from chattel slavery. Um, yes. So it, it is an echo of some messages that were given to men who had to work. Uh, it's so it's so interesting, and it's like, and it's such a level of like next level crazy fucked upness to be like, mm -hmm. like normal, like normal villains do. Like, yeah, I'm gonna create a race of slave horse people. And that's where most villains stop. What puts Steven Lift at a whole other level is that he does have the emotional intelligence and a wherewithal to be like, oh, my slave, my horse people slaves are clearly going to hate this, though. And then they're clearly going to become a marginalized underclass that's going to have just all get a whole bunch of other issues. Like, this is clearly going to breed resentment. And uh, resistance. And rather than be stopping and go, maybe this is something I shouldn't do, his next level response is, therefore, I must preempt and control the horse civil rights movement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that is how policy is made. You know, yeah, these, are, these are choices that are very well informed. They, this is, they they know what things are going to do to people before they do them. Yeah, like, this is the shit Henry Kissinger would come up with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean and it's crazy people on cocaine, but 
yeah you know, there is isn't just crazy people like they do have forethought and they do think of the consequences and then they do it anyway i think it points to the fact that we all understand that there is going to be a resistance to oppression but then how does that how can that be controlled by the people in the existing power structure by funding right which is like a way that donors and funders of nonprofit entities try to exert control over the groups that they're sponsoring mm-hmm. yeah. um, and just having that be built into his projections for what will happen next is like very informed by i mean that by the nonprofit industrial complex basically i mean that has proven to be one very of the most large. frustrating things about capitalism is its ability to consume and co-opt almost anything designed to fight capitalism is infuriating and astonishing. Yes, truly. I I think I mentioned this in the last episode that I was on about the other Black girl, but the concept of elite capture is, you know, is here too, where it it is about absorbing the goodwill of the revolutionary force while also neutralizing the threat. Usually it's by giving that entity a little bit of what they want enough yeah. that makes them more malleable and then it just kind of gets pushed and pushed from there yeah unfortunately it is not a gradual enough push to go full-on horse people not yet because- not yet <laughs> <laughs> we, we are drinking red bulls i heard it gives you wings we um, got a lot of human americans taking horse medicines Remember, yeah, I, I hate to get all like old, old non-binary person nostalgic, but I miss when Red Bull commercials were just like cute little cartoon people getting into humorous situations where they need to like grow angel wings to get out mm-hmm. of it. I mean, they were also very horny. Yeah. What point? Of, yeah, it's cartoons that comes with the territory. Yeah, I miss Constant. when Red Bull wasn't also a record label. That, yeah, yeah. Or it wasn't what, like telling people to jump off cliffs into mud holes with their like hurly burly machines or whatever. I, I gotta be honest, that I'm fully in support of. That's um, just some European wackiness. Yeah, y'all do be doing that. So, yeah. <laughs> like, look, here's the line I think tonight. need to be involved. Look, anyone who makes it, Fuck yeah, you achieve that greatness and cure your dreams of flight. Anyone who doesn't make it, eh, probably for the best. Yeah, no, I mean, like, just Red Bull shouldn't be involved, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I miss when Red Bull commercials were, oh no, I'm an adorable cartoon person and I'm trapped on an island. Oh good, an energy drink washed up and now I can fly away. (laughs) <laughs> when it was like far side cartoons it was best and it yeah. should have never evolved from there i miss far side yeah yes fine this is nothing yeah. okay you shouldn't be drinking taurine is what i'm trying to say hmm. no cash uses his new platform as the got hit in head with coke guy to blow the whistle and let everyone know about steve lift making horse people slaves unfortunately in the realest moment of the whole fucking film, all this does is make their stock go way up because every rich asshole is like, damn, that's a great idea. And what a scientific breakthrough. Real which, SpaceX situation there. Yeah. Which yep. I guess when you stop to think about it, it's like if you've gotten so far as to make full on horse people, like you just look at that, I'm like, 
feel like you could have stopped partway through and just been like, hey, we made the world's best steroid in HGH. Yeah. Or just like, look at those maids. They're all growing maids. It's like, you could have just sold that as like a hair growth medication made fucking billion, like hundreds of millions on that. But that's, like, but that's the promise of vertical integration. Once they've done that, they can then sell off all of the components and byproducts of that process as separate products. So eventually mm. they'll be like the shitty watered down version of the horse juice, right? <laughs> like, and then there'll be like an endless long tail of, of copycats. Um, so like, yo, are you one of will be immersed people? in it. Eventually someone, you'll be like, oh, are you, are you one of the horse people? Be like, nah, I can wait for it to be a donkey person. <laughs> yeah, Actually, exactly. Like, That's just sinister face two, three, four, five, you know? <laughs> look, of the, the end game of the Sorry to Bother You universe is that eventually it will just become that talking animal world from Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I haven't no. seen that, but now I'm thinking about rock and rule, which is, I assume, the same thing, and I'm just going to assume that it is the same thing as rock and rule. Possibly. I, like, Nuke York. I feel like there could have almost been a bonus thing where, like, Army Hammer just, like, explains the plot of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and was like, I want to make that in real life. Hmm. I, want real, like I want real turtle people, and I want to train them to be ninjas, and then they'll be my bodyguards. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, there is there is that. I I thought about that. But Cash discovers the horse people when he's trying yeah. to find the bathroom. And uh, and then I think he's offered the one hundred million dollars. Hundred million dollars. It is like that he does that he does think he's in the bathroom because you have the horse person just be like, "Help me, help me!" crying in pain, and he's just like, "No, yeah, I want to deal with your bathroom issues." <laughs> Which again, it's a terrifying. It's like it's like a disturbing ass scene, but I do find that like particular moment funny. But yeah, but yeah. At the very least, they can stop Regal View and get the strike going and get the U and make them negotiate with the union. So they get, you know, they, they're like, Avengers, assemble. Like, get me, Steve, get me fucking Steven Yun and Jermaine Fowler. Get me Detroit's, like, art pieces. Get me a football team is here now. Get me horse people. And, you know, their powers combined, they form, break a strike, you know. They are able to hold the line and prevent the power callers from getting in. Cash settles into his new life as part of the telemarketers union, ready to go back to work at Regal View in a more just, equitable, collectivist structure. When, oh no, turns out that coke that lifts made of sword actually was turning you into horse powder. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but then not... Yeah, yeah, but then not done, 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 because he he gets all the horse people together and is like, "Hey, let's murder the shit out of Stephen Left," hmm. and that's a real ending. Yes, um, it's it's a wild ass ride, and I love it so much. Chef's kiss. Um, am I looking into things too much? If I am, probably not. Not okay. with this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, like, the only thing that could be the only way. That those cops wouldn't shoot the protesters is that because they were in football uniforms, which is like the only time that they could do any sort of like violence is because they were in football uniforms. Is that a I thing? thought it was because they weren't yeah. cops; they were like private. Well, they're also private security. Also, but I also just thought like, well, but... that wouldn't stop them from. 
doing, Mary. I loved having the football team come together to support them, though. Like, it really right. shows you the power of having the whole community turn out on the picket line. Yeah. yeah. It's cool. And it's like, I mean, you know, we don't, like, get into it, but it's like, oh, yeah, this is another type of worker whose body is the core product in a lot of yes. ways. Yes. You know, and yep. they're, they're not in control of how their body is being used. Especially student athletes. Oh, my who, God. You know, have exactly. been in yeah. court. Yeah, I love like. Oh, yeah, just how student athletes who we've seen yeah. in court fighting to just not have their very images used completely without their consent and without any payment for it. And they're they're yeah. fighting to be allowed to unionize because people keep they keep saying that they're not workers, they're students when they're obviously fucking workers. Exactly. Um, but there was an amazing like moment in one of the news coverage of the early picket lines where they're saying like you know m members of other local unions and obviously college students are all turning out i'm like yes the picket line is definitely accurately diverse in that way uh, i also was going to say that you know they have costume day at the picket line and that is also real like <laughs> like so i was like they're using costume day at the picket line as like a way to stealth do this action around the getting hit in the head with a can imagery. So there were some real touches from actual union campaign strategy that made their way into the movie that I thought were, it was really fun. I, one of the things I thought was also really special was that this movie actually has someone who is a union organizer. There's like literally a Broadway play about someone organizing starbucks and doesn't have anyone from a union involved and it's like that's amazing but like in reality generally speaking there are unions like staff involved in, in union campaigns because it's really fucking hard it's uh, really yeah. and so it was cool to be like in the way that you're like stuff isn't magic it takes work like it was good to see that that acknowledged in the story and hopefully somebody who might not have considered like that that is a career they could go into could mm -hmm. see like I could like go and talk to my coworkers and make trouble. And like that would be a starting point for them. And I also get the sense that like Steven's character is someone who, you know, organized in other workplaces as well as this one. And so he's bringing that expertise with him. And when he has that first meeting with Cash and with I'm so forgetting his friend who got Salva him hired. Salvador. Salvador. Oh, um, yeah. Early on, and he's like, he, the, the organizing conversations he's having with them are all like organizing conversations you would have with someone on the job. He and goes so, from like, town to town fighting for labor rights and getting STDs. Which is <laughs> that also, scene was like, so oh, fucking I funny. Would, I was also like, and fair. Yeah. But, so it was good to see that represented in a movie as a job that exists in the world. And you know, not idealized, but not made into a bad guy. And I don't think yeah. I've ever seen, like, I have. I don't know the last time I saw, like, what felt like a good, legit portrayal of a union organizer in a movie in, like, a very long time. So that was yeah. really fun. And, like, he's hot, and he's also hot kind of in the way a lot of union organizers are hot. So I was like, <laughs> yeah, this, this adds uh, up. This all adds up. That, to me, was one of the most, the biggest takeaways from this movie is, like, oh, Stephen Yoon and Tessa Thompson have like legit chemistry. They had more chemistry than Tessa and Lakeith did, I thought. Well, he did have that. I think they had to like they needed to to take him down a bit with that goatee because like Stephen Yoon by himself is so attractive that like 
you, like, you know, you're like, oh, that, that's now that's idealism right there. But then like having a little bit of like embarrassing facial hair, I'm like, that's something that you can see past. But, you know, it's not like ideal. Yeah, yeah. I would so that's watch Stephen Yeun and Tessa Thompson in a rom-com together. Yeah. Any day of the week. It's just such a great performer. I mean, oh, yeah. Great performers yeah. Okay. can do it. Yeah. But, there's a lot of things about the movie that are so that just ride the line between comedy, like the dark comedy and the realism, which I think is what like Boone Terry Riley... Crews's gigantic Pez dispenser cross for his diabetes. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Terry <laughs> Crews is so good. Yeah. But and like, but all these things like the fact that Squeeze was formerly a union organizer for sign twirlers. Yeah. All these things that are very sort of surreal in a way but just i in did love the sign is, twirling yeah that is just funny enough to be real you know just like army hammer being the fucking arm and hammer heir to the fortune or some shit I'm still, uh, I'm still dealing with that it's too absurd not to be true somehow yep. like, yeah it's just like that's how like zany reality is well I mean, every kind of worker can be in a union, ultimately. Um, yeah. I mean, when I worked at the Musicians Union in New York City a million years ago, I was talking to our lawyer, and he said he used to be the lawyer for the American Federation of Variety Workers, which included the performers in the Rockettes and the Christmas Spectacular. So he said, he's like, I'm Jewish, but I know Santa is real because I have worked on his bargaining contract. <laughs> Santa has a job category at Rockefeller Center. And yeah. I'm like, right, of course, because he would have a slightly different contract than the dancers. I've got um, a question. Yes. That makes sense. Yeah. Bedroom windows on three sides. That's too much, right? Too many windows. Right. I love the shot. It's such a good shot. It's, it's such so a good funny. shot. It is very good, so but it is very like, I think I've seen those buildings in Oakland and Berkeley. I've seen people changing in those buildings that are on the intersection in Oakland and that's Berkeley. The, that's the worry. That's the concern. That's yeah. too many windows. Like two sides? Right. Three? Too many sides. That's too exposed. Well, that's I mean, a, I that's like a it. lot of curtains to buy. Exactly. Yeah. You're tripling up on your curtain costs now. What did you guys think about the photo of his dad um, that he brings with him and the Xerox is that even, the changing is, photo? Do we even know that that's his dad? Or we just know it's a magical fo changing photo? I, I assumed it was his dad. dad. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. But I do love the change of magic. I mean, it's just another little... They also implied that something it. happened to him in high school that they then never follow up on. I mean, same for all of us, though, right? Fair. Fair. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to bring Oof. that up. Oof. <laughs> um, too real, Emily. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just too, too real. Yeah, you know that? I'm like... My first thought was like, damn, that's a nice ass apartment. Then my second thought was, I'm like, I would want to sleep in that room. I would pick a different room to sleep in. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah. Those, are, those buildings on the. Uh, the... That's fine for a living room, bedroom. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty uh, much on display for everybody. Yeah. Now we are in our the portion of the episode that's just, uh, hey, so what were some weird moments? What were some moments that you just really want to talk about? I definitely want to talk about the compliment fight. So oh good. yes, <laughs> I was dying. Yes, I love that. 
I know what what a passive aggressive. I don't know what, but it was. I know there was just the raw funniness of it. But I also like how it's like even when they're fighting, these two are like these two can't be truly spiteful towards one another. That there's like there's something you know while it was cash you know doing a a little uh class betrayal there was something wholesome about it yeah although i think that i mean part of me thought it was metaphor but then i think also that it represents a kind of the aggressive like positive vibes kind of double speak that people have going on absolutely but i do think there is the element because they did kept cutting Mm -hmm. back to like other characters being like, man, what the fuck's going on here? Yeah, Stephen Yen being like, like are you I don't know what the fuck. Danny Glover knew exactly what was going. on. No, even Danny Glover looked like, you know what the fuck? I, really? That's a Danny. I don't look like, man, what the fuck? No, he was like, you guys stop. You have to calm down. You know, this is going to come to is someone losing a lot of money over drugs. I, I guess that's the beauty of acting and interpretation. But uh, that scene was such a delight. <laughs> Have any of you been in a fight like that? I'm not remembering what it, I'm not sure I remember what senior is speaking about. Oh, that's where Cash and Salvador are fighting after Cash becomes a power caller. And they just and they're being very mad at each other, but they just keep saying how good the other one smells and how they wish they have a good day and good things happen. Yeah, to yeah, them, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Very yeah. passive aggressively. <laughs> I mean, it's ironic and it's also a fun uh way that to like illustrate the way black folks can have internalized the white tactics and it's like a fun it's like a fun inversion of you know of like a real read instead of reading someone you're doing everything but reading them and giving them these pointing out elements of them that you know that you like or want more of or what and it's like it oh it reads as teasing. Um, the, and that's I, how I, I experienced. I grew it. up in been in versions of that conversation where it's like when you know you're in front of mixed company. I like what yeah. you're saying about like internalizing white tactics because I grew up in Connecticut. I've definitely seen some hateful complimenting before. Exactly, it's like mm-hmm. it's the most aggressive version of the compliments that professional white women give each other when they're competing to me exactly yeah it's it's definitely like a mean girl's kind of like oh you're so oh thank you oh i love where you got your wow you know yeah it shows you like the very real kind of passion passive aggression that you have to engage in to stay afloat because you can't have direct conflict having direct conflict in you know, white owned workplaces is, I mean, there's a lot of studies just about communication styles and, you know, people don't like being told explicitly what's wrong. And if they were alone, they'd tell each other explicitly what they don't like about each other, but they can't do that here. And so they kind of, you know, sort of throw what they're both dealing with back at each other in a really, you know, sort of mean way, which I, I love. Yeah, no, I mean, I've been in that situation and also like being someone who is uh, various shades of neurospicy, I've also dealt with that, you know, and that's something that people, a lot of people deal with in like professional situations, whether they're at, you know, no matter what kind of job they're at when you have a work dynamic and there's this, this double speak 
you know, this double entendre of, you know, how you got to vent that tension, but you can't say anything outright. And yeah. even in groups of people that are very close with each other, there are things that just people cannot, a lot of people just can't say outright. And a lot of, you know, it's a lot of like a European white shit that, that comes yeah. from, for sure. And I'm not saying that other the other folks don't. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, that's but, yeah. the dominant culture that we're yeah. all subject to. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I've, you know, like struggled with as somebody who doesn't really understand like why we have to be, you know, or has over the years has struggled with trying to not be direct about something or, you know, someone being like, well, that's out of, that's out of, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, that's uncalled for or whatever. But yeah, gosh, like, gosh, Jesus. Yeah. Or, you know, and then there's also the kind of Jane Eyre, like passive compliments of the rich elite when they're you know kind of throwing shade at each other but in like the most intricate way possible and most like you know polite way possible which is you know it's fun when it's on like downton abbey and shit <laughs> i mean yeah you need a little bit of fantastical remove you know otherwise yeah. you're just like oh this is what i deal with every day yeah no that is definitely yeah. you need it to be fa like magic realism for that shit to be like actually acceptable <laughs> Or you have to be Maggie Smith. If Maggie Smith, t like, said, you know, I I'm not really sure what you're trying to do there, I'd be like, thank you for talking to me. But that's, you know, that's Maggie <laughs> Smith. <laughs> yeah, so the, there's a, one thing I wanted to talk about with some of the cinematography in the movie. So I, yes. I talked about Michel Gondry earlier and how Boots Riley has, there was this interview where Boots Riley was talking about how he had the uh, little stop-action movie that Stephen Lift was promoting, which is interesting. The too, infomercial. The infomercial, which is not like, you know, in a, if he was like a super villain in a comic book, he'd have this like Russian constructivist, like for the power of the future kind of shit. And now it's like cute stop action animation that's a little bit uncanny just to be charming to the kids because the kids love that uncanny shit. I know. I've seen what they do on Roblox. But anyway, hmm. the, the point being that he, the, that particular clip was credited to a Michel Dongri, which fucking hilarious. But that was supposedly a, a shout out to Michel Gondry. And apparently he was going to actually say that it was Michel Gondry as the director of that. But he didn't want it to seem so much like a diss because uh -huh. he actually was a big fan. So uh, the wordplay happened there, which is actually pretty on point considering the subject matter of the horse people. But the what I will also say that I found out about that is that that wasn't directed by the actual individual Michel Gondry, but it was directed by a guy out of the Phil Tippett studio in the Bay Area who also worked on Bad God and Star Wars. So hmm. a little that's cool. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Because I, when it said Michel Dogri, I'm like, wait, did he actually do this? Because I, you know, I think this is something that he would work on. I've seen mm -hmm. the shit he do. Like, yeah, I've seen his Lego videos. Oh, I love it. I love his work. Do we want to talk about the coup? Yeah, let's talk about the coup. You guys talk. Go for it. The, the coup. Yeah, uh, Boots Riley's band. I don't know. 
I thought, like, did I, what, like, did I miss a coup in this movie? What? No. <laughs> That's right. I, I had not, I had seen his music videos for the coup before I saw uh, the film, which is definitely one of the reasons why I was like, this is going to be good. is because he's, like, always been such a creative visual storyteller. And I love his music. And I definitely recommend anybody who hasn't watched the music videos. Specifically, I'd say we've got the guillotine. The Magic Clap and Your Parents' Cocaine, I think, would be like my three top picks for his music videos. But um, they're all, but they're, they're they're all really good. I th- the first song I'd ever heard from him was um, Five Million Ways to Kill a CEO," which was put on a mix CD made for me by another union organizer I was dating back in two thousand and three. So oh, there nice. you have it. <laughs> That's amazing. And I just want to say, like, Boots Riley has been in this band since 1993 am i correct or is that the the band has been yeah definitely since the early 90s and i really wasn't that familiar with the music until like i think a year or two before sorry to bother you came out it was like i'm born in 85 and i'm from socal so like just Mm. different different brands of transgressive uh, like hip-hop indie hip-hop were happening and i i had to like sort of come into it as an adult but um yeah yeah like i mean once i discovered like kill you know kill my landlord it's like what's you <laughs> you like oh this guy gets it i love these people <laughs> the soundtrack for the movie was excellent like all yeah, of the music all the oh music. yeah that end credit song oh i i gotta find that end mm. credit song that's going on the playlist yeah. god i should get that on vinyl Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just got the note vinyl for like the, the score and soundtrack. And oh, a, a great nice. music reference I loved in this movie was Detroit telling Cash, you sidestep more than the fucking Temptations. That <laughs> <laughs> was good. It was I mean, so good. Dialogue, dialogue is, is A plus in this movie, too. I mean, so it, it's interesting that we just watched The Other Black Girl because I feel like even though it came out much later, you know, this this movie is sort of the stepping stones to that. I didn't think the other black girl did it quite as well as this movie. There's certainly elements that are homage, but there's these the this discussion of I think is an important contrast to look at the discussion of survival and dialogue and like, you know, plot versus dialogue and like these stories that take like a hard left. Right. In terms of like what happens in the plot, how suddenly things get really magical or something like that. I think it's it's really interesting to watch these two kind of back to back because, you know, the other black girl was, I think, trying to do this, but a little bit less over the top. And it kind of I mean, if anything, it is just evidence of how hard it is to tell a story this way in the way that Boots Riley did. And I think that tire is hard. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And like this is uh, this is an example of like a very well informed and clearly intentional satire. And that's why it rings so true. And even like, you know, y'all revisiting it, it like it only reinforced what you liked. (laughs) That's a sign of somebody who really had (laughs) knew what they were saying. And there, it's a part of a long line of great, like, Black satires. And a lot of them are about men, because that's where we're at. But, like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was just thinking about, I saw American Fiction last weekend. 
And, you know, it's based on a book that's from 2001. And so even that depiction of what like working uh, as a black person in a very specialized field satire is in itself almost a time capsule. Um, and we have like Hollywood Shuffle, CB4, Bamboozled, you know, there's so many great entries into this canon, but not enough about the specific intersections of capitalism, race and gender that happen with black women and the other black girl misses a lot of opportunities, unfortunately. It's just something yeah. we talk about. But, you know, and, and sorry to bother you isn't perfect. You know, Detroit is the only femme character with a meaningful amount of speaking lines. And yeah. she's the only black femme with speaking lines in, to that degree. And Tessa is, uh, is a multiracial person. So we didn't even really get the joy of seeing this character embodied by a dark-skinned black woman. So there are very, like, real missing elements to this, too. But... But when it comes to, like, the core of the satire, it's just, it's so true. In her context, do you think that the movie is feminist or is it I, just shy? I think it shows the very real, like, very real challenges that come from trying to move as a feminist in a Black woman's body in where she is. And even with her privileges, you know, the best she could really do is a form of sort of respectability reinvention by adopting the Black Brit voice, which is, you know, in itself a signifier of, oh, you can listen to me because I'm not one of your Black people. I'm, I'm a special one that came over imported specially for a reason, I'm sure. So you're going to listen to me. And, you know, so there there's a lot to do with Detroit, but, you know, there's not a lot of room for Detroit's story. But what we get and what it serves is very real and good. Um, okay. So, you know, I wouldn't like this too much, but, you know, these are very real you know, missing pieces from the conversation. But, you know, that's why we need more black women making these movies. <laughs> you know, I'm not I'm not putting these tasks up to any old body, you know, just give black women the money to make things the way they should make them. But yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or just give money. Yeah. Just give money. Money. Yeah. Money, please. <laughs> yes. Money now. Money, no. please. No Lots of money anything. now. Yeah. Well, I also think about, like, you know, did Boots make anything between this and the recent TV series? I don't think so. I don't think so. And yeah. I don't know what, you know, it makes you think about, like, this movie was, I think, considered a success. And, like, it makes you think about how much time it took to get the capital oh, to be yeah. able to do the next project, right? It's yeah. like, what the fuck? Yeah. I mean, it, for yeah. this kind of a movie, definitely a success. I mean, this had a $3.2 million budget, made eighteen over $18 million at the box office, which it should have made a hell of a lot more. But for that budget, I mean, that is a heck of a lot of profit for such a small budget. So de yeah. definitely a financial success, this film. If I mean, you were just replicating thing. this equation, regardless of what the movie was, if that person, like, if they would have been put on the conveyor belt of mm -hmm, that, yes. that all Hollywood film directors are put on, you know, they Disney didn't come knocking saying, do uh, the Eternals, you know? Oh, my yeah. God. Because they imagine? know he's he not corruptible. And, no. you know, and so it's very clear. Gonna go rewatch Candyman now. Yeah. yeah, there's a reason, like, 
where did the Jordan Peele fanaticism go after? No. When yeah. we got a movie where he's talking about some shit that we don't really want to talk about. You know, even though, and that movie did well too. Nope is such mm. a, I think Nope is one of, I think my favorite movies of his, for sure. Uh, great film. Looking yeah. Like I mean, everyone still loves him as an, as a, as a creator, but like the, the mainstream media machine that just cranks out endless promotional content and, you know, propping people up as icons, like, you know, the magazine covers kind of stopped happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that the uh, pandemic or anything is any sort of excuse either. I mean, not I really, given that. what we've seen media do since then. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, but, and also, if there is anybody who I feel like could do a really amazing visual job without even having to rely on actor actors, like he made amazing work with puppets, let me tell you. <laughs> Oh my god! I'm waiting for the. I'm waiting for his pure puppet movie. That's got to be happening. Wouldn't it be amazing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I'm I'm so appreciative of his public education work he does, talking about organizing, and you know he's spoken recently a lot more about being black and Jewish, which I think is really important. Um, Mm -hmm. And folks, yeah, follow Boots. You know he's pretty. Oh, I I didn't know Boots Riley was Jewish. Yeah, Mm -hmm. very cool. I learned something today. Yes. No, as Jewish people, it is our job to constantly be really excited about learning about who's Jewish. So I, I just understand why look, the malfunctions just look now. globally. There's a thousand percent from a global perspective. Not a lot of us, so it's always exciting when you find a new one. Yeah, it's so true. Mm-hmm. This movie talks about race, and uh, I think we talked about that. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about? Well, yeah, is there any elements of like what this movie discusses in terms of race or its themes and messages that we didn't cover that we want to make sure to tackle before we sign off? I do want to mention Mr. Bleep because... Yes, we didn't talk much about Mr. Bleep. Yeah, so... God, how good did fucking Amari Harley, like that outfit, like I know it was all surreal, but the eye patch, the bowler hat, the mutton chop mustache, like the jackets... Oh, my God. What a fucking look. Yeah, it was a really great look. But when I saw Cash with that head bandage, it's, his head would not stop bleeding, too, which I think is also symbolic. But when I see him with his ha- that head bandage and then Mr. Bleep with his eye patch, there started to be a little bit more context there for me where, you know, mm-hmm. Mr. Bleep had mm-hmm. some kind of encounter that he's just sort of It dealt makes you with. wonder what did he give up to get where he is? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah, it's very much so. The mutilation, the like active mutilation, you know, that we go through that the extraction does. And it's it's just really playfully done. Also the like vaguely clockwork orange informed attire on yeah, very yeah. much so yeah. oh that it that's what it's fits. evoking. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's sort of this like I it's yes. Cool. I'm going to sort of, you know, take what's given to me and and really kind of give you uh, maximized sort of power guy, realness, power violence, ultimate, yeah. ultimate Ultra violence, capitalism, man. <laughs> yeah. Prepared. Yeah. There's so much going on with that character visually for a character that we rarely hear speak from his actual voice that speaks from who he is as a person as of what he as opposed to what he represents you know as an artist i really appreciate that and then movies when people 
can really get that across with a, a outfit. And what also that character says about survival, desperation, and race in this capitalist machine, you know? And mm-hmm. a lot of what Cash does, his motivations in order to just survive, you know, he doesn't, it, it's not a casual thing that he buys in. You know, it's not him just deciding because, you know, he was initially with the strike and everything. And then they they reward him with a promotion. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is classic. But he also is uh, desperate, you know, and that's a infinitely old method of the entrapment. And, you know, it also reminds me of like what didn't work with the other black girl, because there were all these. Uh, litmus tests of the right you know we're not sure what the right and wrong kind of survival is according to this according to the other black girls narrative i mean this movie we we sort of see all of that that desperation and we're sort of like along with cassius we're struggling with it but you know we see where it can be acceptable and where we don't really need you know we can't really judge yeah and that's like a great example of like where settings matter and like the veneer of professionalism and the way that 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 publishing environment is classed you know as a Mm -hmm. you know like you're you've already been through like a system that puts you in a place where you will be at home there and even you know and Nella is supposed to be you know a, a, a sort of success case for that and she's still struggling because it wasn't meant for her to be there. But you're dealing with sort of more nuanced levels because we're talking about people for whom their core survival needs are still met. And mm-hmm. I think that's what's so great about Sorry to Bother You. It's, it takes us to the ground level about the average worker, which is most of us, mm-hmm. um, who don't really get the choice to choose to be in an environment that treats us this way there's uh you know at least nella has a choice yeah and the book could do better work with how she uses those choices and how they're analyzed but in the case of sorry to bother you we're talking about like the literal like you know bare feet on the pavement precarity of losing your home and that's like you know that's the base level violence of this country is we're constantly taking people from their homes evicting them from their homes from the jump (laughs) and you know as violently as possible and that's partially why it's so clear because we're talking about very like real material realities that people are facing and when you're dealing with like a professionalism environment you just have to do more work you know that's uh the other black girl's problem i feel like that's america's attitude is like why even let you have homes if not to take them away that's, you know, the dream. One thing- That's the real American dream. The, the dream of the society is just to eternally keep kicking people out of homes. One of the, the pieces I actually want to make sure I also shout out for the movie is the production design. For Sorry to bother you, it's the production design. The way the call center office is set up is like really dead on. That particular kind of falling apart rotting inside like office space with cubicles like that and like you could just like feel the mold in the walls yeah you know (laughs) like you know you're gonna get an environmental headache spending too much time in that room yeah um was really 
well-designed and the, the bar spaces as well. When we see them there, the, the car, like with the windshield wipers on the string <laughs> and its own musical soundtrack. I, I actually, I don't, I didn't look up the credits for it, but everything really working on the production design was really like making a point about like these aspects of the, what you see on the screen are an important part of the storytelling. And I think for anybody who's had like really shitty office jobs, like the kind of thing where like they, where they pretend that it's like, because you're not like doing physical labor, it's like clearly this like bougie thing. And you're like, but it's really not guys. It's not. Yeah. No, Um, no. you're just in a windowless room. (laughs) Yeah. This was such a good depiction of that particular kind of work. And he's paid on commission. Yeah. And the personal experience of being in, like, being a telemarketer and having to interrupt somebody, like, that whole cinematic, yes. Dropping the people in. Drops down yeah. when they're having sex and eating stuff and yeah, pooping, yeah, pooping while buying cell phone materials. Yeah. I also learned about, what is it called? The Orb Mind of the Congo. I didn't know that that was a thing. You know, mm. I'm going to totally admit my my ignorance but i did look that up and is that real is that a real thing yes yeah. yes okay. yeah well, and- i saw it and i'm like not looking anything up i'm like this is either real or a reference to the 1995 film congo <laughs> they talk about weird like magic metal in congo the i don't know i haven't seen it since i was like seven Um, like and again i didn't bother to look it up yeah or else i would have known that it was real instead of being like i wondered thought about looking it up decided not to i mean i would suggest anybody look that up i'm so sorry alicia because i am going to look this up right now so i have the right terminology because i have it on my phone boopity boopity boop boop um that's snip 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 this out and we pretend that emily found it lickety split um uh, hold on this is all getting edited out this is the time to tell your darkest secrets yeah Hmm. i'll get Hmm. cut is it coltran wait are you talking about what they're what they're mining oh yeah yes what they referenced yes Colton. yeah it's yeah, main one, but it's also cobalt and cobalt. Uh, yeah, I feel like copper evils well. that must go into rare metal mining, mm-hmm. rare earth mining, is just so fucked up. But I'm sure it must it's be and powering the just, devices that we're using. But we're just yeah. so unwilling to look at it because otherwise we'd have to confront just how essential it is to all of our modern society. Yeah, like the lithium. Being a little bit more of a limited source than fossil fuels. Oops, a daisy. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there that I would recommend looking up. It can be upsetting, so you know, but it's good to know. But yeah, coltan mining, the coltan element is really important for, or I, I shouldn't say the issue is really important because the coltan metal is used for like any sort of, I think it's like heat insulation for cell phones, for computers, for pretty much any co- computing divide yeah so and um thank you movie for making that putting that on my radar because i otherwise like it's not talked about in the media which is fucked up you know there's a lot of things (laughs) very much i mean it's part of the reason why congo is in like month eight or nine of 
a conflict that's fully driven by the West yeah. greed for what's in their earth and millions are suffering and dead. So it's like, and these are things that we could know them. Fucking King Leopold. We live in a country that expressly limits our access to that information. And Mm -hmm. you have to be at such a level of extra time and money to want to and have the time to go into that stuff that, like, you know, it's also kind of a self-insulating problem because people who know this information are also among the richest of us. Yeah. (laughs) And the most, you know, holding stake for keeping things this way but i do want to commend the movie for that i i think Mm -hmm. that in terms of like propagating ideas spreading information you know a lot of the things we talk about on this podcast that how films work that way you know this is a, a very literal example of one of these movies actually bringing something to the table you know, that, I mean, you can't trust everything that's said in movies, but, you know, we can look it up. Those of us who can look it up. Yeah. You know, we can look I, it up. And, you know, it, yeah. there's a lot of us that could probably look up things more often, myself included. Mm-hmm. But this kind of uh, richness of the conversation in the movie of what these characters are talking about and what they're referring to in that context mm-hmm. can be really important. And, you know, from a movie about, like, saving the world from a horrible organization that's making people into horse people, you know, there's so many things that, like, just like a lot of horror discusses really, really important subjects and heavy subjects. This is a prime example of a film that brings so much while being fun, while being horrifying, while being engaging and very watchable you know this isn't the babadook Mm -hmm. this isn't like something (laughs) that is just like look how fucking look how fucked up this is you know this is is such a good this is such a good movie i love this film yeah i mean and we've talked the movie talks about class the only like lgbt qia stuff that's in there is things that are on detroit's shirt she tells salvador and cash to kiss does that count there's a lot I, it, of it does a lot of uh, <laughs> chemistry, but I mean, like that's you know, if it's fan fiction level, you know, I don't, I'm not going to give the movie <laughs> credit for that so much unless it's like Christopher Walken in the prophecy, like going around kissing dudes. That's one of those things where I'm like, there's something to this, but yeah, no, this, this movie isn't really discussing that. I don't think it needs to. In this case, it's something that I think is well discussed in the Blackening. Um, yeah, very but that's much so. again a different movie. <laughs> Um, such a such a funny movie. I've been trying to think about how the movie talks about disability or or doesn't in this case. Yeah, it's I, so it's so uh, not pointed out like in dialogue. It's there's a lot of clues to people being yes disabled, but not yes. an argument. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, and you can see like with Terry Crews's character, right? Like you can see like how a life in which you're housing is that precarious can like create the kind of situations where it's easier to develop diabetes when you're older. Like, yeah, Yeah. like that's Mm -hmm. right in there. And you see these people signing their lives away to join what's it called corporation. Worry free. Worry free. So they can, you know, guaranteed food and housing. And I think about how like 
Goodwill is still pays disabled workers below minimum wage legally to work there as if they're like doing uh, as if they're doing the workers like a favor for employing them at all in the first place. Yeah. Um, It's it feels like it's right dancing around the edges of the movie in a bit. Yeah. So would we all recommend this movie? Yeah. Oh my God. So much. Every day of the week. Yes. Required watching. This yeah. is an in, it was an instant classic when it came out, and it only gets more relevant and rewarding to think about <laughs> as yeah. we go on. Agreed. Oh, such a good movie. I think the only reason I hadn't seen it sooner is that I knew that I was going to watch it for the podcast, so I wanted to like keep a clean slate. But I mean, that's not really an excuse. It's been out since 2018, <laughs> uh, so. Uh, sorry, never a bad time to here. watch it. That's true. Except, no. I guess, 2017 or earlier when it did not exist. That oh. was a terrible time to watch it. The album <laughs> was out. The Coup actually has an album that was based on the screenplay that Boots Riley wrote. That's but you right. didn't really have any way That's to wild. That's movie. cool as hell. So, I also recommend that. What do y'all have to recommend for someone who enjoyed this film? Well, definitely the music videos that I mentioned for sure. The coup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I am struggling to think of another movie that I thought really did a good job of looking at worker organizing or union organizing that was also like fun in the same way. Like I hate people are always like, Lana, you should come on my podcast to talk about labor movies and we'll talk about salt of the earth. And I'm like, I'm so glad that movie exists, but like that's actually like we can't have that be the answer to like what Is worker that the organizing. Only one? Yeah. yeah, or mate one, and I'm like, we need uh, more kinds of movies like that. I'm so going to recommend another yeah. movie about community activism and collective action against the economic oligarchy class. So I'm recommending Step Up to Electric Boogaloo. Cool. I could I could come up with anything real, so I'm like, that's oh, no. the theme's doing the up. By the way, Step Up 2's title is Stepped Up to the Streets. Uh, and that is one of the best Step Up movies, by the way. It is mm. very good. The first one is like... Oh, I'm thinking of Break Into Electric Boogaloo. Oh, you're thinking, you were, I'm okay. thinking of Break Into. I was thinking of Break Into. I have thoughts of Breaking Into. I, can, yeah. I have, see, I, I, as an example of community organizing in, in movies. Anyway, that's fun, fun, fun. But yeah, the themes do overlap. Excellent. Amanda, what are your uh, recommendations? Gosh, well, because I've mentioned it a couple times already, I'm going to recommend Nope as like another transgressive mm-hmm. movie about Black exploitation. But in this case, it's about uh, our image, our likenesses, as opposed to our literal bodies and everything that it has to say. It just gives you a lot to think about. And also Kiki Palmer's performance just you know honorary oscar in my mind and god is there a book i can recommend too i feel like i recommended it a minute. that's really good and i'll also recommend we were talking about black femmes on the music tip there is this incredible book it's very thorough and big but i recommend it because it's beautifully written it's called liner notes for the revolution and it's this just incredible work uh of archive like of archiving and music writing about not only like a century of Black women's sound in music, it's also about the Black critics of their times that were writing about their music and how they were in dialogue with the times. Gorgeously written book. 
just can't recommend it enough. Rent it. That the sounds amazing. Yeah. yeah. It took me like four uh, <laughs> borrows to get through it. It's worth it. One other mm. recommendation I have that's not break into Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> And that is the comic series Farmhand by Rob Gilroy. Nice. Ooh, I need to read that. Yes. Very good. Why? Oh, and- can I have something oh. comics-wise? Yes. If, you're, if, if you happen to enjoy the combination of superheroes and critiques of Henry Kissinger and the U.S. foreign policies to cap- yes. capitalism, then yes. you might want to read a series that is now going to be available in trade paperback. Waller versus Wildstorm from Spencer Ooh, Ackerman, yes. and Jesus Marino, and Michael Atia, DC Black Label Comics. You don't need to know Wildstorm to appreciate how good this is. Just imagine a Pulitzer Prize award winning journalist writing Lois Lane, and like it's all about all the fucking dirty shit the US does to other countries and espionage and, and also Deathstroke on a jet ski for fun. But if folks want to hear more about that, you can listen to my two interviews with Spencer on my podcast, Graphic Policy Radio. Graphic Policy Radio is the podcast. But yeah, Waller versus Wildstorm is is the comic. My recommendation. I need to read that. Thank you. I was going to say, I was going to recommend y'all's podcast. Yeah. Waller versus Wildstorm, DC Black Label. Well, yeah. Learn a bit more uh, about that on uh, Graphic Policy. One thing I would love to recommend is this series on youtube called crime pays and botany doesn't mm. it is a chicago uh, that's my guy i love him awesome <laughs> yes the chicago like chicago born guy lives in oakland and goes around and discusses all the different kinds of effects that de- development has on nature and city planning that incorporates trees and and wildlife or i should say let me start that over uh, city planning that incorporates non-native flora as opposed to native trees and plants that are beneficial and not water I say if they're drought yeah. things like that yeah and he's also really funny off the cuff very very classic Chicago accent guy but yeah it's all on YouTube and you learn a lot of things about stamens the stamens motherfucking beautiful stamens <laughs> um, yeah, he's got some specific call-outs for, like, flora parts that are very funny. Um, yeah. I also really love when he's just the vibing videos where it's just 40 minutes of him walking with another plant expert through, like, the, like, Ohakin mountain cloud forest or whatever, oh, yeah. talking about, like, rare mushrooms that they're finding and, and identifying on the spot and talking about, like, that stuff is great, too. You just, uh, yeah, what a great personality dispensing good information. Yeah. And um, advocate of guerrilla gardening, which I love, you know, yes. kill your lawn, mm-hmm. let it die, grow some succulents or grow local native wild flowers and oh, yeah. uh, trees and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but and yeah. that's very o- Oakland and New York City are two of like the hotbeds of the guerrilla gardening. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So very appropriate right. to talk about that during this episode. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. I live not too far from uh, from a few black owned farms that kind of started a lot of sort of like bits of land rematriation, bits of, you know, fertile farming in public spaces, bits of folks doing foods, food and crop swaps. And that's like growing very heavily mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, especially in the middle of the city. 
where I live. And I highly recommend if you live in Los Angeles County and have any land, you can get a rebate for killing your lawn, which is something that we're doing because the home that us and our co-op bought was sold to us with a big ass lawn that we didn't want. Yeah. <laughs> um, so highly recommend it. Uh, the rebate will cover almost all of the cost of switching out your shit. Nice. I love it. Nice. So uh, where can we hear more about you all? We're going to start. I know we talked we talked a little bit about graphic policy. Mm-hmm. Amanda, do you have other things that you want to promote? Tell us where we can find you. Gosh, yeah. You, I mean, you can find me on the Internet. I am uh, an editor and I work with a number of clients right now, including Hasbro. I'm doing a lot of stuff with Wizards of the Coast. There's a couple of books that I've worked on that are coming out later this year like D&D, The Fallbacks, book mm. one, and a couple of comics. Uh, there was just a reissue of Frankie Comics by Rachel Dukes, and I really love the paperback reissue. And uh, yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Megamander. I'm not really on the Bad Place Twitter anymore, so don't, I mean, don't bother. And I have a link tree, uh, linktree.com slash Meadows Amanda to find all the other little things that are going on. Nice. Alana, tell us more about where else other than graphic policy? Yeah. So other than podcasting, I am actually on Blue Sky a fair amount where I am at my handle, which is L-E-V-I-N, my last name. I uh, am also still on the bad place somewhat because it is literally part of my work to do that. So if you Mm -hmm. are there, I'm at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn, uh, which is also my handle on um, threads, which I have to also explore for work reasons. But Graphic Policy Radio is my podcast. We are at the intersection of comics and movements for social change. And we also have a side podcast talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine called Deep Space Dive, all in the same place. Yes. Oh, I love Deep Space Nine. Me too. It's the best. My, my and the most recent episode was about non-binary characters in, in the series. So oh, I know. Gotta look that up. Oh, it is the queerest of the old school track by the largest of margins. There's a lot yes. of a lot of things that Deep Space Nine is the est of. Yes. Best of. Well, I am glad we do get, you know, now we have characters like Stamets Captain and Mariner. Angel. Yeah. Captain Angel. Oh, Captain Angel. Oh, I cannot wait for Captain Angel's return. Mm-hmm. And where else can we hear about your Star Trek opinions, Ben? Uh, yes, you can hear about my Star Trek opinions whenever I interject in Star Trek into my podcast, uh, Progressively Horrified, which I co-host with Jeremy Whitley and Emily Martin. New episodes come out every Friday, and you can catch that wherever you caught this one. Yes, we're on Progressively Horrified at Transistor.fm, Prog Horror Pod on the bad website, but we're also on Patreon. Check us out, Progressively Horrified, on Patreon. Maybe sign up. At least follow. I know there's a free follow tier now. You can do Patreons for free. I'm accepting it as a Patreon owner myself. Ben, do you have any other places that we can follow you, the individual? Yes. Captain Laserhawk, the manga, out from Tokyo Pop, based on the Adi Shankar series on Netflix, is out in stores now. Definitely check that out. And yeah. You can find all my other various books, uh, prose and comics at benconcomics.com. Nice. And I'm Megamoth on a lot of things, on Blue Sky, on the dying Twitters, mega underscore moth on Instagram, megamoth.net, megamoth on Patreon at all. But 
come and visit us on Prog Horror Pod, Progressive Horror Transistor. And then, Jeremy, our hearts go out to you and your survival of the hurricane. And you can find Jeremy at JRoom58 on Twitter, Jeremy Whitley at uh, Blue Sky, JeremyWhitley.com. And uh, hopefully, he'll be back next week with internet. But thank Unless you. the hurricane comes back. If there's more hurricanes, who knows <laughs> these days? <sighs> Climate change. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, thank you all for seeing me through this process. Thank you, you all for- good. thank you for joining us. Always great to have you as guests. And thank you, Ben, for rooting for me. And thank you, listener, for just everything that you do, as long as it's nice. And remember, stay horrified, because it's the least you can do in this day and age. Mm. Clap! Hey, this is Ilana from Graphic Policy. I may have mentioned that I have spent a number of years working in the labor movement. On the episode, I talk about how great it is that Sorry to Bother You features an actual professional union organizer showing up to help organize a workplace. But I don't want to give people the impression that you need to wait for a union to send an organizer to your workplace. There actually are a lot of paths you can take to forming a union or even just organizing with your coworkers for better treatment on the job, even without a union. There's a few projects I want to refer you to that are all online. One of them is the largest labor federation in the USA, which is the AFL-CIO, has a resource and contact people on their website. Go there and get resources and contact folks at the unions for advice. The website is aflcio.org slash form a union. That's aflcio.org slash form a union. There was also a project led by a number of union organizer members of DSA to offer advice to folks who are trying to unionize and offer them support. And that was called the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee. And their website is workerorganizing.org. There's also a petition website called coworker.org that helps workers use digital tools for free and helps workplace petitions. And really, organizing can start with something as simple as an online petition. Now, if you're a gig worker, there are a number of existing projects that you can join in, like gigworkersrising.org. And if you're a worker in the arts, the Soul Center is starting something new that you'll want to get on their email list. It's solcenter.work, soul like the sun, W-O-R-K. I have also seen that the National Labor Relations Board, which is the government agency that helps protect the right to unionize, have resources on their website now, too, because actually the government wants you to form a union. And that website is nlrb.gov. What a time to be alive. Remember, workers coming together to fight for a better workplace is actually the only way that things have ever gotten better for workers period. So as they say on the end of Captain Planet, the power is yours.